I'm going to read now from the Bible, and it's on the inside of your sheet, so you don't need to turn it up in the Bible, but it'd be help to me if you followed there, where it says John 11, and I'm going to ask for God's help as we look at his word together. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this chance in the middle of the day to hear from your word, the Bible. Uh, Many of us here will be of varying faith or no faith, and yet we pray that for each one of us it would be useful and beneficial as we listen to you. Amen. Amen. So let me read. And we started the chapter last week, and so far uh, Jesus is visiting some friends, and the, the guy Lazarus has died, to fill you in. We'll pick it up from verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So we are uh, continuing this little series we started last week, uh, Death and All His Friends, which is a Coldplay illusion for those who know it. Um, And last week we were looking at dealing with perplexity. Today it's dealing with grief. And um, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, if you can remember all the way back to 1997, that was a huge moment in the recent history of our nation. And our response to that moment as a nation actually vividly displays uh, the different views there are in our culture at the moment about death. Um, On the one hand, and you'll remember they got a lot of criticism for this, there was the royal family and uh, many others like them who reacted with characteristic stoic reserve, the famous stiff upper lip. Whilst at the same time, uh, there was this huge outpouring of public emotion. Millions of, no, one million bouquets placed outside Buckingham Palace. Uh, There were queues to sign the condolence book, which went for 10 hours uh, the keys. Um, th- as the hearse went down the motorway, the, the whole windscreen was obscured with flowers that were chucked off motorway bridges, and so it went on. And these very different responses to death are partly, I think, a result of different temperaments, probably, 
but they can show a very different underlying view about what death is. Um, death is sometimes described in our culture, isn't it, as perfectly normal and natural. Um, so just part of the circle of life, as the Lion King has taught us. But at other times, it's described as this unnatural enemy. And Dylan Thomas, the poet, he told us to rage, rage against the dying of the light. Um, and within the church as well, there seems to be a lot of confusion about death and what it is. Um, one of the most uh, popular Funeral poems is by a clergyman called Henry Scott Holland. And in this poem, he writes this. Death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away into the next room. And the impression is given that death isn't a problem. It's, it's just a nothing. Uh, whereas other parts of the church, uh, in those parts, sickness and death are constantly rebuked and prayed against as absolute disasters. Uh, a friend of mine was living in uh, West Africa for a while. And the church he was in, they ended up uh, praying for a guy who had died for seven hours after his death, praying that God would bring him back just for a few more years. And in that context, the the impression can be given that a believer's death must always be a failure or a defeat in some way. So with all this uh, confusion, how are we to think about death? How are we to to find comfort and hope, especially uh, when facing grief ourselves because of the deaths of those close to us. And in this passage, uh, Jesus visits some friends of his, so a brother and two sisters, and we've discovered already that the brother has died, Lazarus. And we see Jesus uh, comforting these two sisters in their desperate sadness. And through these uh, two conversations and the two paragraphs there on the sheets, one with each sister... Um, Although Jesus doesn't give them all the answers they're looking for, and we thought a little bit about that last week, what Jesus does is he reveals himself to them, and in a a very fresh way. And in doing so, he gives them and us just the help, just the comfort that we need when facing grief. So let's look at it together. And I'll put the first uh, point there for the first paragraph. Jesus is the conqueror over death. So let's pick up the story from verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So here we have uh, this sister Martha, and she's pouring out her anger and her disappointment to Jesus. But there's more, verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, interestingly, I don't think Martha's here anticipating that Jesus is about to raise her brother from death, which he does, incidentally, at the end of this chapter, beyond our reading. In fact, in verse 39, she discourages Jesus from even taking the stone away from the tomb. Her brother's resurrection is just not on her radar. But she is expressing in this verse that despite everything that's happened, despite all her unanswered questions, she still has, she's still clinging on to what faith she does have in Jesus. And Jesus responds to her distress and her sadness by pointing her to himself. So verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha shows there she believes what the Old Testament scriptures taught about a final resurrection at the end of time. But interestingly, that's not enough. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is saying that he isn't simply one who can give 
resurrection life, as if it's a gift that's separate from him. He's saying that connection to him, the divine life giver, is resurrection life. You can't separate Jesus from eternal life. Knowing Jesus is knowing eternal life. And that is why, verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. picture is a little bit like uh, we're uh, cut flowers. And a cut flower looks healthy for a little bit, and that's what we're like. But the reality is that they're always wilting and on their road to death. And uh, until we're reconnected to Jesus, uh, who is the source of life, that is the, the way we're heading. Um, it's like some, someone with um, something that's got the batteries running down, but then you plug it into the mains, the national grid, and it has this new life, and it continues perpetually. And that's the new life we can have in relationship with Jesus. So he continues, verse 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me, so he's saying that is whoever receives this new spiritual life now by trusting Jesus, shall never die. So he's saying that from the moment we believe, we become death-proof. We, have, uh, we can therefore look forward confidently, even though we will die, to rising again beyond the grave, to be with Jesus forever. That's the promise here. And it's an incredible uh, promise and an incredible claim. And I guess there'll be uh, people, plenty of us here, who are wondering, well, what basis does Jesus have for speaking in this extraordinary way? And uh, Lazarus' resurrection at, at the end of this chapter is a powerful proof of Jesus' statements, where Jesus shows he has authority even over death. And yet even Lazarus' resurrection is just a sign. And the sign points ahead to what Jesus is going to achieve in a few chapters' time. So if we carried on reading in John's Gospel, not long from now, Jesus himself is going to rise from, from death. Uh, not just for a few years, uh, like Lazarus does, but rising permanently with an indestructible body to live forever. And Jesus appeared to literally hundreds of people, you know, from his best friends uh, to his worst enemies, convincing them that he had uh, been raised from the dead. And he convinced them to the extent that many of them actually went to their deaths rather than denying what he had shown them. And it's his resurrection As one writer put it, in his resurrection, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first human. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. So we see here that Jesus is the conqueror over death. His resurrection confirms that God's final reversal of all that's gone wrong in this world is going to succeed. This world which has been invaded by the powers of sin and death, is not going to be abandoned. Jesus' resurrection declares, once and for all, that ultimately this world is going to be healed and recreated. And Jesus ends, verse 26, by looking at Martha, and he says to her, and he says to each one of us, do you believe this? So in the face of death, Uh, we see it's not enough to have a vague optimism about the afterlife. It's not even enough uh, to believe what the scriptures teach about a final resurrection. In these verses, Jesus deliberately uh, redirects Martha's focus firmly onto him as the conqueror over death, the one on whom she needs to rest all of her confidence. 
And she wonderfully responds in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Jesus' words here, they actually help us on how we're to view death. Because they tell us, don't they, as I put on the sheets, that death is now a defeated enemy. And so as we uh, respond ourselves to the deaths of believing loved ones, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're not to grieve like those people who have no hope. He's saying, you know, death might be an, an unpleasant vehicle, but it's now a vehicle that takes us to a beautiful destination. So death might be a horrible monster, but it is now a conquered foe, a conquered beast, which now serves and obeys the Lord Jesus. So we don't need ultimately to fear death. And we don't need to give way to feelings of despair or desperation. Now sometimes uh, the loved ones that we're grieving for uh, will be those who showed no signs of faith whilst we knew them. And I know from experience that is a, a far more painful grief. Uh, but ultimately, we don't know what dealings an individual has or has had with their creator in those moments before they die. And so in our ignorance, we must learn in that situation to hand the situation over to God. And we must learn to say with Abraham, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And then leave it with God. But in our grief, we don't uh, simply need to understand that Jesus is the conqueror over death. Uh, secondly, we also need to understand that Jesus weeps with us at death. So let me pick up the story from verse 28. When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary. It's saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it's interesting, Mary says exactly the same thing, doesn't she, as, as Martha did in verse 21. Jesus, but Jesus can see that Mary's particular struggle at that moment is different from her sister's. And so Jesus responds in a very different way. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then we have this uh, shortest verse in the Bible, and perhaps the, one of the most surprising, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, interestingly, I, I think if, if Christians were inventing this story after the event, I think they would have Jesus sweeping in and declaring, this isn't a time for tears, and then boldly striding over to the tomb and breaking Lazarus out of the tomb while everyone else faints in shock. Uh, but there's no sense of triumphalism here. In this passage, we see the one that Isaiah predicted would come hundreds of years before Christ arrived. And he said he would be the, the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And here we see Jesus sharing our pain to the point of tears. And people who have children sometimes describe how from when the, the child first arrives, it feels like they could never be happy so long as their child is in pain. You know, their lives are now so bound up with the child's life. And here we see something of that emotional connectedness in Jesus. Jesus has his heart so tightly knit with our hearts that our pain causes him pain. 
and actually far more so than with any parent or lover. Even though Jesus knows that in just a few minutes' time, at the end of the chapter, everything is going to be okay, that isn't enough to disconnect him here from Mary's pain. I wonder if you've appreciated this about God. Um, And when you think about it, we are just dust, aren't we, compared to the almighty creator. And yet we see, the Bible says, that we cause him pain in his heart. Amazing thought. So in Hosea 11, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. It's saying that God can't even judge human beings without being churned up inside. Um, if you were here a couple of years ago when we were looking at Psalm 56 here on the, uh, the barge, there's one verse in that psalm which says that God stores up our tears in a bottle. He knows our griefs better than we do ourselves. So we need to ask the question, Do I have a picture of God who is too high, too exalted to bother with little me and to feel my pain? Because if I have that picture of God, I need to get rid of it. I need to banish it and replace it with this picture in this chapter of the Son of God, the one by whom the worlds were made, weeping like a baby at his friend's grave. In the face of death, you and I need to know more than simply that Jesus is the conqueror over death. We also need to know that he's with us. He's with us in our grief and our tears in the midst of death. And actually discovering that means that you and I can go to him with all kinds of complaints and longings, whatever it is that might be on our hearts at the moment, and we can bring those things straight to him, just like the the sisters do in this passage, knowing that he is both the sovereign God and yet also the one who cares and understands. And seeing Jesus uh, respond to death in this way also impacts the way we're to view death. So I've put there, death might be a defeated enemy, but it is still an enemy. Even uh, we know when we know it's not going to have the last word. So death is still wrong. Death ends the good things of life. Death means that someone can no longer... Uh, make a difference, build a career, make a home, hold hands, eat, laugh. The good things of life are over for now. And death intensifies the most painful things in life. Life involves, doesn't it, all kinds of unmet desires, relationships we hope to have, experiences we long to enjoy, ambitions we wanted to fulfill. And death so often declares over those things unfinished. We love holding on to things, possessions, our families, our memories, and death rips them from us. And in addition to everything else, and perhaps worst of all, death also brings an end to loving relationships. Each of us is is a product of our relationships. None of us would be the people we are today if it hadn't been for those people around us who have shaped us. So we're not to think of ourselves as like, you know, snooker balls that just uh, bounce off each other un unaffected by our interactions. We're more like that kind of soft, gooey plasticine that you might have had when you are growing up. And when we interact, uh, for better or for worse, bits of our coloured plasticine rub off on on one another, uh, sometimes leaving a damaging splodge, or sometimes actually uh, making us more beautiful than before. Bits of us lodge in the other person, and vice versa. And that is why when a loved one dies, people say, it's as if part of us has died. 
And that's true, that's right. Do you see, death is wrong. It ends the good things in life. It intensifies the most painful things and it fractures loving relationships. And for all these reasons, death is still a real enemy. And that is why it is good and it is right to grieve. A stiff upper lip is not Christian. Uh, Whether that's the the British Reserve, which thinks that it's uh, in some way... Uh, mature not to get emotionally involved. You know, we say when the widow isn't crying, isn't she coping well? Um, Or whether it's the Christianized version of this, where we quote Bible verses at ourselves and tell ourselves, if we're upset, it must be because we're not trusting God. Actually, a stiff upper lip has got nothing whatsoever to do with trusting God and everything to do with trusting in ourselves and our own ability to cope. Because Jesus shows us in this passage that it is godly and good to grieve. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 that if his friend Epaphroditus had died, he would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. In fact, the more like the Lord Jesus we are, the more we will experience his tears in the face of this world's suffering and death. His death is still an enemy. Now, the portrait we get of Jesus in this passage, I think, is is quite hard to get our heads around. We see in these verses, don't we, one who is infinitely strong, authority even over death, and yet one who shows infinite humility, who weeps with us in the face of death. And I think by temperament, we we probably latch on to to one of these things at the expense of the other. So perhaps we feel uh, comfortable with the idea of Jesus' strength and his control, but we find his weakness a little bit um, embarrassing, maybe. Or we love the idea of of a Jesus who is sympathetic to the hurting and marginalised, but we feel very uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus' authority and his sovereignty, the one who in this passage insists that all people must put their faith in him. And yet even though this this portrait we have of Jesus is one that uh, no fiction writer could make up, and and even though it's a, a portrait that perhaps we find philosophically hard to hold together, Wonderfully, this is the true God. This is the one that each one of us was made for. And the reality is that in the face of grief, we need to know both these things, both that he is conqueror over death and that he weeps with us at death. And so if you are grieving or if you have known grief, Jesus is the one you need. Keep returning to him. Keep returning to the, to the God who can offer us both truth and tears. And the call of this passage for those of us who are not grieving at the moment is we need to learn to imitate both aspects here of what Jesus is offering, truth and tears. Perhaps by nature, and this will be a lot of us, uh, we are fixers, we're truth people. Uh, We love telling people the, the three things that have gone wrong in the situation and the five things they need to do to fix it. We love offering Bible verses perhaps that we think will help someone. And if that is our temperament, as it just might be mine, We need to learn to be sensitive to other people's pain and grief, as Jesus is here. So when we enter a room, are we conscious of who is hurting in that room? Do people find in us, uh, do they get a sense that we're a safe person, someone they could go to with their tears, someone who will sympathise with them? Well, perhaps um, by temperament, we're feelers, we're, we're tears people. We naturally draw alongside people, but actually we hate clear answers and we hate confronting people with the truth. 
But here, of course, we see Jesus confronting Martha, pointing her to himself, the only hope in the face of death. And perhaps that's something that we need to learn from Jesus. So whichever tendency we have, whether we're fixers or whether we're feelers, it's as we fill our minds with and as we worship this Jesus, that by God's Spirit, the thing that doesn't come so naturally will start to express itself more and more in us. So as we close, I'm going to end with a a little section from a sermon by the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards. And in this sermon, he, he holds up these two aspects of who Jesus is, his strength and his humility. And my prayer is that as we gaze on this Jesus uh, right now, that we might not simply love him more, but that we might uh, be transformed to be more like him. Edwards writes this, Christ is infinitely great and high above all. All kings and princes are as worms of the dust before him. All nations are as the drop of the bucket. And yet he condescends even to such poor creatures as men, even to become their friend, their companion, even taking their nature upon him and becoming one with them. Are you afraid that he's not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? But how can you desire one who is stronger than Almighty God? Are you afraid that he will not be willing to stoop so low as to take any notice of you? But then look on him as he stood in the ring of soldiers, exposing his face to be buffeted and spat upon by them. And look at him hanging on the cross. Do you think that he that had humility enough to stoop to these things will be willing to accept you if you come to him? What is there that you can desire should be in a saviour which is not in Christ? What is there that is great or good? What is there that is adorable or endearing? which is not to be found in the person of Christ. You see, Jesus is the one that each one of us was made for. And he is exactly the one who can give us comfort and help in the time of sadness and grief. We've got a chance for questions and comments, but why don't I close us in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for, for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you that uh, he is the one our hearts are made for. We pray that we would uh, come to him and know this confidence uh, in death and also that we would become like him and become better comforters of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.